The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study class. I'm Chris Martin. We're continuing our study in the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, and I hope you're having a good 4th of July weekend. It certainly seems unusual uh, with all of the uh, stay-at-home pandemic-type things going on, uh, because if this was a normal uh, 4th of July weekend, we would not even be having class in person this week because everyone would be traveling. Uh, and uh, typically on weekends like this, we don't have live Bible study, although we would have uh, worship. Uh, but because now no one's traveling, we're having class, and I'm glad you could be here. Uh, about the only travel it seems that most of us are doing these days is traveling down the hallway to check on the uh, guest bedroom that we haven't been in in the last couple of weeks just to make sure it's still there. But uh, otherwise, no one can travel. But I'm glad you're here for Bible study because we've got a great study. We're uh, continuing our study of 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last will and testament. And I think you're going to enjoy this uh, lesson because we're going to get into some really practical issues of uh, great relevance for us today. Uh, in 2 Timothy, we looked at our first two lessons covering chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2, looking at our spiritual gifts. We looked at the anxiety that we have over doing what God wants us to do and the tools that Paul gave Timothy that he then gave to us through his letter that we can look at to help calm some of those anxieties. We looked at some spiritual gifts, motivation in our second lesson, looking at uh, the different things that we ought to keep in mind as we try to do our spiritual gifts. And there we looked at the issue of his illustrations of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And we looked at the conclusion point that Christ calls all of us to have the attributes of each of them as we try to live out the lives that he's given us doing uh, whatever he's equipped us to do with our spiritual gifts. And then last week we tackled battling battle fatigue. And some people are fatigued with the coronavirus uh, and stayed at home all the time. Some people are fatigued with financial issues. Some people are fatigued with relationship issues or vocational issues. And so whatever the situation is, uh, I think a lot of people got encouragement of last week's lesson. This week, we take a hard left turn in subject matter, and Paul does for Timothy and us what involves a look ahead. For Timothy, it was a look way far ahead. For us, it's a look not that far ahead, and I've titled the lesson Equipped for the Last Days. You'll see at the end of the lesson why I've called it that, but it's tackling the issues of the end times, the point in time before Christ returned to earth. And so we're going to take a look at uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and we're going to break it into two halves, and I call the first half characteristics of the last days. Because what Paul's doing now is he's looking forward in time with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's telling Timothy what is going to be relevant for him in a small degree and relevant for us in a big degree. Let me start with a little application about how this works, how we can study something written 2,000 years ago that's so directly relevant to us today. I want to steal a term, or actually two terms, from the world of economics. And I know a little bit about this uh, because my oldest son, Josh, is getting a PhD in economics at West Virginia University. So when I talk to him, a lot of our conversations drift into economic theories or studies that he's doing in the world of economics. But there's two critical issues that divide the study of economics, micro and macro. And in Paul, I use these terms or I use this analogy because that's a picture of what we're going to see in this passage. Because Timothy is our micro study. And just like in economics with microeconomics, studying an individual person, an individual family, or something small like an individual city or local government, with Paul writing to Timothy, there's a micro issue, and the micro issue was the growing challenges he would face in his ministry as a pastor in Ephesus. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's also writing to all of the church for all time. That's the macro issue. That's the bigger picture, impacting lots of different people over lots of different times. And just like in the economics world, how macroeconomics deals with a really broad brush, 
for national governments or the world economic situation, things like that. When Paul writes Timothy, there's a macro issue that deals with all Christians for all time, and that's going to be the look into the future that most directly impacts us. So let me apply that because he starts in chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Timothy by saying, but, and that's his transition from chapter 2, everything we've already discussed in the last three lessons, and he says, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. There's a couple of things significant there. Let me break them up for you. They start with in the last days. That means something very, very unique to Paul and the other New Testament writers. There's consistent warnings in Scripture about the last days. Jesus uh, spoke about it at the end of his ministry, and the Gospel of Matthew takes an entire chapter to discuss what Jesus called the last days. They're the point in time shortly before Christ returns to begin his, uh, what we call millennial reign, or his earthly reign. Peter, writing in the second chapter of his second book, used the exact same terminology to describe the exact same point in time. John, writing in the second chapter of his first epistle, his first letter, does the exact same thing. And then John later, writing the book of Revelation that we're going to study later this summer through the fall and the winter, is going to spend a tremendous amount of time talking about the last days and using that similar type or identical phraseology. So that idea has consistent warnings through Scripture that the earth is not going to get better. We'll talk in a minute about why. But Christ warned us, the apostles writing, and Paul is writing here about the last days because to the Jewish writers of his days, to the Christian writers or the Christian readers or, or listeners in, in Ephesus, knowing what this uh, phraseology meant, would knew he's jumping forward in time. Now, Timothy and his church, just like us, doesn't know when that is, but uh, we're certainly a lot closer to it now than Timothy was. In Scripture, it also has very specific meaning. We see going back to the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 2 talks about the last days. Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4, all describe the last days as before the Messiah's reign on earth. Hebrews chapter 1 has the exact same phraseology to start the book, talking about the last days that are coming. And then I already mentioned John the first epistle of John in chapter 2. So all of those parts of Scripture give us the same view that we're talking about, the period in time leading up to and right before Christ returns to start his millennial reign. So we would describe that as the second coming of Christ. And uh, it's got that consistent treatment in Scripture uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, any reference to the last days, it's not a reference to right before the earth is destroyed. It's a reference to right before Christ returns and starts his millennial reign. So if you want to put the timeline together of eschatology that you'll learn in a lot more detail, once we get to the book of Revelation, the time period is things get worse and worse and worse. The church is raptured out. The believers are taken out. There's a seven-year tribulation period when things get really, really bad, and then Christ returns uh, the judgments take place, and Christ rules for a thousand years. And the point in time that we're describing here is the point in time building up to the rapture of the church and then ultimately building up to Christ's return in his millennial reign. Now, he uses the time period, or he uses the word for time period, kairos, and it's not chronos. Chronos is a specific amount of time. It would be a calendar entry. When he refers to Kairos, what he's referring to is an epic or an age or a season of time. And so he's not referring to the year before Christ comes back or the month before Christ comes back. He's referring in the general Greek term to the age of time before Christ comes back. So he's intentionally painting with a broad brush and not defining time by the calendar. He then says by way of introduction, during this time period, during these last days, we're going to experience difficult times. Uh, and the difficult times, the difficult age he's describing here is a very harsh, strong word. The first thing we've got to capture is this idea of what's human history doing? Because I've put on the screen the question of whether we're seeing a steady retreat of evil. The 20th century should have resolved that question for all time, but surprisingly, it hasn't. 
human sin nature since the time immediately after Christ has viewed the progression of humanity as simply missing one more thing that humans could provide to stop bad things from happening and stop the spread of evil. Going back to the first century, there's been perceptions that we just needed more opportunity. We just needed more education. We just needed more money. We just needed more crops. We just needed more fill in the blank on something. And the idea was society will progress. The goodness of humanity will then become more and more expressed and we will see a steady retreat of evil. Now, even before the 20th century, you could have had a pretty easy debate that mankind's evil just became more and more manifest as we had more and more opportunities to manifest it. In the 20th century, that really came home to roost with the manifestation of extremely agnostic liberal philosophy, agnostic and liberal theology, agnostic and liberal politics, and all kinds of things that manifested initially in World War I, then in World War II, then in the genocide and the problems we've seen with the development of what we now call third world countries with rampant poverty, dictators at small and large levels, authoritarian rule that was evil to the core in all segments of the world society. Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, didn't matter what the hemisphere was, didn't matter what the part of the world it was, we have not seen a steady retreat of evil. As we go through human history, it continues to get worse. In our own lives, you've seen that. Those of you that have been around for a long, long time have seen things progressively change, not for the better in terms of societal good and evil, through the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and now into the 21st century. We have not seen a steady retreat of evil. And so what Paul is addressing with Timothy, what the Holy Spirit is using Paul and Timothy's communication to share with all the rest of us, is that as the closer we get to the last days before Christ returns, do not expect a steady retreat of evil. Instead, expect it to get worse. Expect evil to become more pronounced, have more technological opportunities, have more political opportunities, have more educational opportunities, have more uh, economic opportunities, whatever sphere you want to talk about, expect it to get worse. When he uses the phrase difficult times, he's using a Greek word that's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used one other time in Matthew chapter 8 to describe the violent behavior of two men who were possessed by demons. In Greek literature, it has been found numerous other times and it's always been used to describe a violent person or violent weather. So the description when Paul uses this word to describe difficult times, that's actually as big of an understatement as the English language could make it. It's going to be cruel times. It's going to be tragic times. It's going to be uh, violent times unlike anything that we've ever seen. So our progression of evil is not going to be thwarted by all the things that humans can do. It's not going to be thwarted by technological advancement. It's not going to be thwarted by educational improvement. It's not going to be thwarted by economic gains or other societal gains that culture or legislators in different countries can come up with. It's going to get worse because Satan is going to guarantee that that's going to happen. Now, once this happens, as difficult times start to be experienced, more difficult times in the last days, he then gives us the characteristics that we see in 19 different categories. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2, 3, and 4 say, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, I'll stop right there because those, I think there's 17 different characteristics. It'd be real tempting to stop and talk about all those in detail, 
but I don't need to because the terms are so simple and so obvious. All I have to do is say, it's the evening news. Obviously, we get news reports of weather events and virus things that are more biological, but the description of people, the problems with people, and all those things I've identified, we just keep seeing getting worse and worse and worse. The politicians we want just get worse. The politicians we don't want just seem to get worse. The politicians in the other countries just seem to get worse. The leaders of business just seem to get worse. The leaders of social entertainment just seem to get worse. So whatever the categories you want to talk about, we've already in our own lives seen these things increase exponentially. Not just a little bit worse than last year or last decade or when we were much younger, but exponentially worse as we accelerate through time. Now, I highlighted the first phrase, lovers of self, because I genuinely believe that everything I described falls into that one category. Paul starts with lovers of self, basically narcissists. And everything else I describe is really just a different manifestation of someone who is so narcissistic that they love their money. They're boastful about their achievements. They're prideful for their looks or their achievement. They're blasphemers of anyone that's not worshiping them. They're disobedient to parents because they're not them. They're ungrateful, unholy, and loving. Everything, I think, comes down to the issue of lovers of self. And today in our culture, there's actually a psychological label for this called self-ism. Self-ism is essentially a philosophy, a theory, a doctrine for living, or a tendency that upholds explicitly selfish principles as somehow being desirable. We rationalize it today in culture by basically talking about what's good for you, or your truth, or your search for yourself, or you being your true self. All of those things are as unbiblical as they can be because they don't focus on what God created you to be, what God wants you to be. They're just a focus on what you want to be, and you coming up with a rationalization of philosophy to justify whatever you want to do, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to think, and what other people experience doesn't matter because it's all about you. So this idea of selfism we now see as a psychological label that's becoming more and more entrenched in all aspects of society. We fight it with little kids, but then once they become older and become more self-centric, then uh, it's just a question of whether cultural uh, limitations can be placed on them or legal limitations can be placed on them or theoretically some uh, biblical limitation can be placed on them because that's about the only hope we have. Otherwise, selfism, that aspect of prideful, sinful nature will take over every human being and lead to disastrous consequences. So this idea of selfism really describes all uh, 18 or 19 of those categories that Paul identifies as the first characteristic of what it's going to be like in the end times. All those different categories of lovers and money and boastful have obviously been problems since the first century when Paul was writing this Timothy. But the point of the lesson is, as we get closer to the end times, as you see more and more of this and shake your head and say, how could that person possibly say that? How could that person possibly do that? The check is, that's what God told us was going to happen. We're going to see it with more and more politicians, more and more business leaders, more and more social leaders in the entertainment world, more people at a small local level. And it's essentially narcissism run amok. It is a purely self-absorbed, self-centered person dealing with whatever their sphere of influence is. And the higher that sphere of influence gets, or the greater that sphere of influence gets, the more damaging that type of narcissistic behavior becomes. Notice the second thing he describes. He's going to describe four characteristics of the end times. The first one is that selfism that we just looked at those 18 categories. The last one he mentions in verse 5, the 19th category, is holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. That's essentially an indictment of where most Christianity is going to go. When he talks about holding to the form of godliness, that's a very 
trite way of saying they go to church, they pray, the building they sit in on Sunday mornings has a cross on the front of it or on the top of it, they sing songs, they listen to a preacher, they call themselves a Christian, but they deny its power. If I had to describe most mainstream, certainly not all, but most mainstream Christian denominations today, I would describe it as one that denies the power of God or the power of his word. Massive, mainstream, Protestant denominations have in the process of rejecting the accuracy and the historic reliability of the Bible, have done things like written out the miracles of the Bible as being inconsistent with the laws of physics, therefore not something that denomination or their pastors are going to hold to or preach or teach. So those denominations that have essentially written out the first 11 chapters of Genesis, that have written out all of the miracles of the Old Testament, including those with Moses and the children of Israel, those who have written out the miracles of Jesus in the gospel, those who've written out the miracles of the apostles in the book of Acts, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, the letters of John, those that have written out all of the supernatural explanations in Scripture still hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. They deny the power of the supernatural. They deny the power of God. They deny the ability of God to do back in Jesus' day what the Bible says he did. So if they deny that, they've got to deny his power or ability or desire to do it in the 21st century. So as we get closer to the end times, we're going to see the Christian church neutered as more and more churches hold to a form of godliness. They still pray. They still meet on Sundays. They still have preachers. They might even still have Sunday school, but they deny the power of God. They deny the power of God's word. And as we get closer to scripture, we're not going to see a decrease in Christians necessarily. They're just going to become watered down, nominal, worthless in other words, exactly where Satan wants them to be. So number one is selfism. Number two is nominal Christians that deny the power of God or God's word. Number three are those that are dishonest and corrupt in mind. Notice what he says in verse eight. His third category says, just as John Ez and John Braze resisted Moses, so these also resist truth. Men who are corrupt in mind worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their lack of understanding will be clear to all as theirs was also. Now, let me explain this because it's a little bit confusing. If you don't recognize those names, that's because they don't exist in the Bible. Jewish extra-biblical literature, as I've taught you when we studied Hebrews and I taught you when we studied the Gospel of Matthew, has gotten very deep over the last several thousand years with extra-biblical stories about everybody in the Old Testament. I told you what you know about Abraham is like the first story of a skyscraper as far as the Jewish world is concerned with floors number two through 100 extra-biblical stories about Abraham uh, that they still hold as being true. The same thing exists for the patriarchs, the same thing exists for Moses, the same thing exists for the prophets. There's lots of extra-biblical Jewish literature that fleshes out the story that's in the Bible. When he refers to Johannes and Jambres, he's referring to two people in Jewish extra-biblical literature that the old Jewish stories say accompanied Moses when he went to Pharaoh and did his miracles, and they basically infiltrated Moses' inner circle, pretending to be believers, but really just being pathological liars because they were there trying to benefit from some magical power that Moses had. So they're categorized in the extra-biblical Jewish literature as essentially being pathological liars, incapable of telling the truth, deceiving everybody around them, and the third category Paul mentions to Timothy of the type of person we're going to see more and more of as we get closer to the end times is this type of person.
to a Jew reading this in, Tim in Timothy's church in Ephesus, they would have understood exactly what they meant. They would have said, oh yeah, the pathological liars. We're going to see more of them. That's what he's trying to say. So it takes a little bit of translations for a Gentile audience, but he's basically saying these men resist truth. Not only do they refuse to hear what God wants them to hear, but they insist on their own truth. They insist on their own opinion that they define as truth, even if it's not factually based in truth. And it says those types of people are corrupt in mind. Now you can point to politicians you could put that label on. You could point to business leaders you could put that label on. The point for Paul here is not to call out names over the future of humanity, past, present, or future. It's simply to say as we get closer to the end times, we're going to see more and more of this kind of person. The person that thinks they are so smart, that has their own version of opinion that they elevate to truth, that it defines as being completely worthless as it's related to the true faith of life in Jesus Christ. So these kind of people that resist truth, that are corrupt in the mind, that are worthless in the faith, it says in general they're not going to make progress. You're just going to see a lot more of them. It says they are so obvious, and the truth is so obvious, you're going to be able to say they're delusional, they're a pathological liar. But he's saying if you want to look at society and keep track of when we're getting closer to the end times, look for more and more leaders that are like this. So number one was selfism. Number two was the religious uh, people that are essentially empty in their faith. Number three are the pathological liars, corrupt in mind. And then look at his fourth category. It says in verse 12, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. He's describing two different categories, really opposite sides of the same coin that we're going to see more of. He says, you're going to see people, number one, that are just unexplainably evil. You'll look at them and you cannot wrap your brain around how they could do that, how they could engage in that act of terror, how they could engage in that act of hurting someone else, how they could engage in that act of debauchery. It just makes no sense. It says those kind of evil people, using two Greek words there to describe people that are just amoral and, and evil in terms of the application of the way they live their life, it says they're going to become worse. You're going to see more and more of them. The imposters are the other side of that coin. That's the person that's evil to the core, but they pretend to be good. Or worse yet, they pretend to be a Christian. And he's saying these types of evil people, rotten to the core, not believers, not centered on God or his God's word, at one level are going to be open, blatant, obvious, and they don't care. The other side of the same coin is that's going to be their character. They're just going to pretend to be something else. So those four categories, he says, are going to build up as we get closer to the end times. We're going to see that. Are we seeing those things now? Absolutely. You just have to watch TV. And if it's not about a weather event or the virus, if it's about people and their characters, uh, and their character traits, the things they do, usually it's a parade of evil. It's so bad, my wife Natalie hates to watch the news. She hates the realization that with every passing day and every passing year, we're getting closer to the end times, which means more people are hurt, more people are victimized, more people are killed, and it's just painful to watch sometimes because all these four categories that Paul is talking to Timothy about, all you got to do is turn on the TV, open up your computer to a website about the news, read the newspaper if it's still delivered to you. It becomes increasingly worse every passing day, and if you're not careful, it can be very, very depressing. The thing that Paul then gets to is the reality of how do we get ready for this, because he's going to offer some encouragement to Timothy to deal with the micro, to deal with him and his church, because he's got to deal with it himself, or otherwise he's just going to get depressed and quit. He then has to get his church ready because they're going to see this. And then we've got to deal with the macro issue, which is fast forward 2,000 years, the 21st century. we got to live. What are we supposed to do? How do we get ready today for the last days? Now, when I say that, I'm not assuming that we're not already in the last days or the last days have begun. Because as you'll see when we get into the book of Revelation, I think we're there. I think Christ could come back any day 
And anybody who studies scripture is not going to be surprised because we're getting pretty close, I think, to the last of days, to the end times that are talked about eschatologically through the Bible. But we got to get ready. We got to get ready today for tomorrow. We got to get ready not knowing when Christ is going to return. We got to get ready not knowing whether it's going to be in our lives or our children's lives. There's things we got to do. That's how Paul transitions through the end of chapter 3. He starts out in verse 14. He says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you've known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What he's doing here is he's reminding Timothy what we all have to have. Number one, you got to learn scripture. You got to know the history of God's people. You got to know the history of God in humanity. You got to know what he says about living life and what he says about the, the life to come. And it's got to be a matter of firm belief, not because of what someone else has told you, not because of what someone else uh, has practiced and you're a part of the family, therefore you think you've got to believe in it as well. But the word that he gets to in verse 15 where he says no. He uses a Greek word for experiential knowing. There's two different kinds of knowing, two different Greek words to describe known. Number one is academic. If I said, I know two plus two equals four, that's just an academic knowledge. That's one Greek word for I know that. The word for I know my wife, Natalie, loves me. That's a different Greek word. That's not academic. That's experiential over years and years and years of living with her and knowing with her and dealing with her, I know experientially she loves me. So Paul is saying what you learn and what you firmly believe has got to be experiential. If you've been in class very long, you've heard me tell the story. If not, it's the application for this and it's in my own life. When I was a first year law, a lawyer, been out of law school for about six months, my law firm sent me back to Waco, back to Baylor, to interview students to work for my law firm in the summer. I drove with a guy that was not from Baylor. I liked him a lot, but he just happened to be the strongest, smartest, most well-educated agnostic in the entire law firm. He had no experience with Baylor. He had minimal experience with Christianity. And we had a very pleasant conversation on the way to Waco early that morning, spent all day interviewing law students. And on the way back home, all he wanted to talk about was Baylor. And then we transitioned into Bible. And then he wanted to transition into Genesis chapter 1 and the Gospels. And to get to the Gospels, we had to get through Genesis chapter 1. And he started cross-examining me on the basis of my faith. How could I believe what I profess to believe. I realized in that embarrassing car ride on the way back to Houston, even though I'd been in church virtually every week of my entire life, even though I considered myself a strong Christian, even though I'd been in certain types of leadership uh, in church, either in school or when I was in college or law school, I realized in that car ride I had the faith of my parents and my grandparents. I had not done a personal deep dive to not only learn, but to say, I believe, and I can talk you through Genesis chapter 1. I can talk you through Noah's flood. I can talk you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can walk you through or talk you through the miracles of Christ and walking on the water and calming the storm and healing the demoniacs and all the different things in Scripture that are supernatural until I got to the point of taking time in personal Bible study, reading from good writers on those subjects, and developing a personal experiential knowledge. I couldn't withstand anybody that would walk up to me and essentially just blow out the air and knock me over because that was the strength of my faith when an educated, aggressive agnostic could get me stuck in Genesis chapter 1. I had no hope of giving him the story that had changed my life through Jesus Christ because he was hung up on the creation account of Scripture and didn't believe anything that came after it. So I had to personally tackle those issues. And my challenge for you is 
that the motivation for you in daily quiet time, the motivation for you to be reading the right authors, the motivation for you to have your own strong, firm belief in Genesis chapter 1 and, and, and the, the other accounts of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis through uh, Noah, and then ultimately later on through uh, Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the story of Moses, and then the story of the kings and the prophets that follow, and then in the New Testament, the story of the supernatural. You've got to have a personal, experiential knowledge of those things through your study, and not just because you sit through some sermons sit through some of my Bible studies, you've got to have a knowledge because what Timothy, what Paul is saying to Timothy is you've got to have that security, that foundation to deal with the coming push towards the end times. In Timothy's church, it was going to be an increase in narcissism, an increase in that selfism. It was going to get a lot worse in time after him and his church experience. For us, it's a whole lot worse, but Timothy was going to see it get worse we're going to see it get worse. His application for Timothy is you've got to personally learn. You've got to understand why you firmly believe and you've got to experience it to build that foundation. Notice what he says here. He then transitions, and I want to show you how he transitions between verses 15 and 16, because in verse 15, he talks about Timothy knowing sacred scriptures. That phraseology in the Greek, to a Jewish audience meant one thing and only one thing. There is no room for interpretation. It meant the Hebrew Scriptures. It meant the Old Testament. But notice what he does. When he describes sacred scriptures in verse 15, look at what he does in verse 16. He says all scripture. He doesn't use the same terminology to say sacred scriptures are inspired by God. They're God-breathed. He says all scriptures. So in verse 15, he says, Timothy, you got a rock-solid foundation in the Old Testament. But it's not just the Old Testament that's sacred scripture. All scripture. By this point, he's referring to the Gospels. He's referring to the books inspired by the Holy Spirit that he knows he has written. He's describing the New Testament. And he says all scripture is, and then he says, inspired by God. And I've highlighted inspired by God because I've done this before in teaching some other lessons. We talked about inspiration, but if I don't do it here, you don't get the context because a lot of times our English use of the word inspiration gives us the wrong idea because you would think Paul could see a beautiful sunset and then be inspired to write the book of Romans. That's not what it's saying. You could say Paul in a deep, deep conversation with Dr. Luke in his prison cell, could be inspired for what Timothy was struggling with back home in Ephesus, and he was inspired to write the book of First or Second Timothy. That's not what he's talking about. When he used inspired by God, that's the English translation of the Greek words that essentially mean God breathed. Now, why would he use that word? It's fascinating, but I think it's clear as day because if you go back to what I just mentioned a few minutes ago in Genesis in the creation account, the giving of life does not occur when God creates Adam. The giving of life does not occur when God creates Eve. The giving of life occurs when God breathes into them and they then become alive. So it describes the creation of a body that God then breathes into, and they become endued with life. They become filled with life. They become that aspect of the fingerprint of God in their soul that has an, a self-awareness, that has an, a, an understanding of right and wrong, that has a consciousness to love and be loved, that has an understanding of who God is or the capability of understanding who God is. That's the aspect of God breathes. But it's fascinating in the creation account, when it describes God breathed, it doesn't mean that God created replicants, that God created clones that were the exact same thing. He created the uniqueness of Adam and then breathed his life into him. He created the uniqueness of Eve and then breathed life into her. And so we see then by the use of that same terminology in Scripture, it does not mean that God dictated verbatim. It means God breathed his essence. God breathed his truth 
but it still recognized the uniqueness of Paul as a writer. That's why Matthew writes differently than Luke. It's why Mark writes differently than John. It's why when you read uh, Peter in reading uh, his, his epistles, it's very simplistic Greek because he was an uneducated fisherman. Paul was an extremely educated religious Jewish leader. He writes much more formal, much more elaborate. So when God breathes into them, it's God's truth. It's the exact words and letters God wants to inspire, but it still recognizes the individuality, the individual vocabulary, the unique mind God has created in each of them. So it's a fantastic way to describe how do you get every letter in Scripture inspired by God without being dictation and still recognizing 100% truth from God yet still the personality of the writer can come out. And the answer is God breathed, just like it was 100% God giving life to Adam, 100% God giving life to Eve, but still they're individuals that just had the breath of God in them, giving them life and giving them uh, their uniqueness and their vitality. So that's how scripture works, and that's why Paul is using that terminology. And notice the four things he says is for. Uh, it's for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. These are the other things we've got to understand. If we're going to prepare for the last days, I've got to know my scripture experientially. I've got to have a firm foundation. And it's got to be based on scripture for my teaching. It's got to make me different and make me better. If I mess up, it's for rebuking me. It's for bumping me back into where I'm supposed to be. It's for correcting me, which means I'm just slightly off. I'm not articulating it right. I'm not understanding it right. But I'm getting corrected so I can say it right and I can think about it correctly. And it's for training. And the training means you train me so I can train other people. So it teaches me for myself. It rebukes me for myself. It corrects me for myself, but it trains me so I can have an influence on other people. So how do I hold myself firm in the end times? How do I get myself ready for the end times? i got to experientially know Scripture. I've got to know Scripture is God-breathed, and it's accurate down to every letter and every word and every letter. And it's for my teaching, rebuking, and correcting for training in righteousness. Now, notice what it says. It ends by saying so that the man of God may be complete. Now, when it says man, it's using the Greek word for all people. It's using the generic man for mankind, so that the mankind, the man of God, may be complete. The idea here is that my completeness is not me finding myself. My completeness is not me doing something, some great goal of mine. My completeness is not my job. My completeness is not my spouse. It says my completeness is being the man or the person that God wants me to be. So all of the scripture, my firm foundation, my experiential knowledge, how that translates into my teaching, my rebuking, my correcting, my training. The purpose of all that is to be the person that God has created me to be, not just so I can say, okay, God, I did it. Now take me to heaven. Notice how it ends. It says, equipped for every good work. That means even though society is going to continue to get bad, even though it kills me to watch the evening news, even though it kills me to check up and get a news update from the BBC or Fox News or CNN or wherever you get your news updates online, and as depressing as that is, I still have to use my spiritual gifts. I still have to do good for those that God brings into my life, that brings into our class, that brings into our church, that he brings into my law firm, that he brings into my family sphere. All those different spheres, I've got opportunities to use my spiritual gifts, and you've got opportunities to use your spiritual gifts. So understanding that Scripture and our knowledge of Scripture, our application of Scripture, is what's going to get us ready for the end times. Because remember the attack. The attack is going to be selfism. It's going to be fake Christians. It's going to be pathological liars. And it's going to be people that are just pure evil to the core. And the way I deal with all four of those bad categories that we already talked about is I've got to be rooted in Scripture. I've got to understand what it says about the past. I've got to understand what it says about my present. I've got to understand what it says about my future. So with that background, uh, we're left with the realization of equipped. And my point here is you can never be too equipped. 
I started thinking about this word that made me laugh because when I go to trial, particularly a long trial, I am ridiculously equipped. Right before the virus started, I went to trial in Los Angeles. The last time we were together, I said goodbye to you guys because I was going off to trial in Los Angeles. We were looking at a three-week trial, and I think when we wheeled into the courtroom on the first day of trial, I had 62 banker's boxes worth of stuff. A whole bunch of that was exhibits, evidence. But I had rule books. I had photocopies of cases that I thought I'd need for arguing with the judge. I had stuff like breath mints. I had peanuts. I had water. I had all kinds of stuff to hold me over in case I couldn't step out for lunch. I had everything I thought I would need if I was stuck in that courtroom for three weeks. I was equipped. That's the same idea we have to have as we look at living life into the end times. If you're going to go out hiking all day, or certainly for a couple of days, you got to be properly equipped or you are going to be in trouble. If you're going to go fishing out at sea or into a lake for an entire day, if you're not equipped, you are going to be in trouble. It's the same thing with preparing for the end times. If you are not equipped in your experiential knowledge of the Bible, in your deep understanding of it, for your training, for your uh, rebuking, for your correcting, if you don't understand the nuances of Scripture, you are not going to be fully equipped to deal with the rough times we're going to face in the end times. This idea of equipped means we've got to really, really be equipped, and there's no amount of work you can do that's going to leave you uh, under-equipped because all work we do in Scripture is going to have a benefit for our lives. Now, let me give you some application in the brief little time we got left. I've got some life lessons for us. Number one, the degradation of society shouldn't cause depression. It should give us peace. God warned us beforehand to give us comfort of his understanding and his control. The news is depressing. The nightly news, the newspaper, the news websites, it's all depressing as we see more and more narcissists, as we see more and more evil people, as we see more and more people doing ungodly things. It's depressing. And like Natalie, you don't want to turn the TV on. But even though you don't want to wallow in that, you can watch it and understand as it gets worse, you can have peace through that because I can say God saw it coming. God's in the middle of it. He's not going to be slowed down. He's never surprised, and he's always in control. So don't get depressed as we get closer and closer to the end times, and we're still here. Number two, the primary weapon of evil is deception. Therefore, we must be people of the truth, standing up for the truth, and opposing efforts to devalue the truth. The reason that I talked a couple of weeks ago about the critical juncturing in society with personal opinion being elevated up to the level of truth is it puts personal opinion on the same level as true truth, which is the Bible. So if our weapon of evil is deception, the only way to combat deception is being a person of truth that commits to tell the truth all the time, no matter what the consequences are. Standing up for the truth, meaning the truth of God's word and just true facts, and opposing efforts by other to devalue the truth when they want to elevate personal opinion to the standard of truth and not tolerating that. Number three, God is the essence of truth and his word is our anchor of truth for every aspect of life. For my personal situation, before I got hung up and expressing an opinion on any subject, I want to deepen my understanding of what a scripture have to say about it because I don't feel that my opinion on any subject is worth anything if I don't have a deep knowledge of true truth, which is God and his word. When I'm deep in that, then it's okay to step out just a little bit and share what I think an opinion is on something that is true. Let me introduce you to somebody and give you an application on this that gave me a lot of comfort. He's one of my favorite poets, although most of you guys have probably never heard of him unless you've got a college degree in English literature or in poetry. His name is James Russell Lowell. Lowell. He lived in the 19th century. He's a Harvard man, Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, although he never practiced law. 
uh, is known primarily as the founding editor of the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. Uh, he was the ambassador to Spain for 20 years, but he's most well known as a poet because he was against slavery. He hated slavery. And in the years leading up to the decades leading up to the American Civil War, he was one of the writers that through poetry attacked the evils of slavery. And I'm going to show you my favorite quote from him that was written in 1845 that is directly on point to today's lesson. And um, I share it because it's one of my favorite of all time. Truth forever on the scaffold. Wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown, Standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Lowell penned that and published that in 1845. Twenty years later, and it was published about uh, in opposition to slavery. He was at the time disgusted with the state of Texas uh, adopting slavery and recognizing slavery as an economic institution. He wrote that poem about our home state of Texas. Fast forward 20 years. 1865 was Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation and what had essentially been his prayer to stop American slavery came true. Truth forever on the scaffold. In other words, truth being assaulted and hung and killed. Wrong, evil, forever on the throne. But law reminds us, behind the dim unknown, God standing in the shadows, watching, observing, reacting, always in charge, always in control, never slowed down, bringing more and more people to an understanding of him, doing things on a daily basis to reveal his person and his glory to those who will seek him. So the question for us is, can we be a part of that? as people of truth, as seekers of truth, firmly grounded in his word to equip us for dealing with the end times that are coming. If you like this study, it's going to wrap up 2 Timothy next week. It's going to be really, really good. If you like the study of eschatology, hang with us a couple of weeks. We're going to do a deep dive into John and his book of the Revelation. It's going to be eschatology for the rest of 2020 and into 2021. And if you like this end time stuff, it's going to get really, really good. because We're going to have a couple of months, if not years, deep into Revelation. I think you'll enjoy it. Close with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for speaking to us about the day that we live in. We pray that the news won't make us depressed as much, that we will see the bad news of the world as something that you warned us about so that we wouldn't panic, that you warned us about so that we wouldn't fear you being disconnected, that we wouldn't fear you not caring and not loving what was going on down here as we prayed for things to stop and ask why so many times we see the evil of the world. Thank you for telling us of the future. Thanks for equipping us from the future through your word. Thanks for loving us and giving us your word to hold tight to as we need to as we approach the end times. Thank you for all your blessings in our life. Thank you for this holiday weekend. Protect us until we're back here together again next week. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Thanks so much. I'll see you next Sunday. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.